you're listening to the Tambanan podcast. I'm Paul Doran, and in 2011, Portugal Tuma and I started Ten by Nine in the black box in Belfast. But we're a far cry from that at the minute, as most of you will know, and most of us are isolated at home and in need of some company or maybe escape. I'm sure you don't need me to go over the whole Ten by Nine as a live event where nine people have up to ten minutes to tell a true story from their own life shtick, because you all know that already. And as we are living in extraordinary times, our Ten by Niners have gone to extraordinary lengths to help us keep the podcast alive with fresh material. Recorded in living rooms, bedrooms and garden sheds using iPhones, laptops and wax cylinders. Stories are still being told and heard. And we're on the lookout for more, but I'll come back to that later. So on this podcast, we have three stories for you. And we start with the very organised Judith Somerton. Judith runs 10 by 9 in Manchester, which of course is on hiatus for now. But she sent this to our email address, story at 10by9.com. Take it away, Judith. When I finally managed to book my dream weekend break to New York with my best friend, I wasn't expecting to be run over by a car in a hit and run just three days before I was due to fly out. Needless to say, I had spent months planning every minute of the weekend. There were endless spreadsheets and lists, rainy day options, transport routes, budget planners, discount cards, prepaid book tours. Anyone who knows me will not be surprised. I have a spreadsheet for everything in my life. I like to plan and I don't like surprises, and I especially don't like having to change my plans at the last minute. I spent the next few days recovering at my parents' house, since living alone in a one-bedroom flat where everything was stored in high cupboards didn't marry up with my newfound crutches and co-dridemol lifestyle. I sat on the sofa while my mum brought me Ben and Jerry's, and I pondered what I was going to do about my flights to New York. Unfortunately, because the driver hadn't stopped and the police didn't follow through with the investigation, I didn't have any official record of the accident and, crucially, wasn't able to claim for any compensation or insurance. And if there's one thing I hate more than changing my plans, it's needlessly losing money. So, to alleviate this, I decided to go to New York. I packed all my painkillers into a sturdy backpack and hobbled off to the airport, much to my mother's dismay. Looking as pathetic as possible, I attempted to get an upgrade to business class, only to find that there is only one class of passenger on a budget flight, even if it's transatlantic. I was also told I couldn't qualify for the extra legroom seats, since they were for able-bodied passengers only, what with them being the emergency exits and all. Feeling disappointed, I continued through security and sat down to have a sad hot chocolate and some painkillers in the chain restaurant, where I'd normally be sitting down for a pre-flight 5am gin and tonic. I was in pain, I was alone, and I was beginning to think I'd made a mistake. Little did I know, help would come from unexpected places. Once I boarded the flight, it became immediately apparent that the unfriendly check-in desk lady had been kind to me after all. I was seated on a row all by myself, despite the rest of the flight being full, meaning I was able to stretch out my poorly legs for the entire seven-hour duration of the flight. The painkillers were kicking in nicely, and I slept for the entirety of the journey, surely the most pleasant flight experience I have ever had. When we touched down at JFK, I was told to remain in my seat, which I didn't have much choice about given my crutches had been taken away from me by the flight attendant. Once everyone was off the plane, I was delicately escorted to a waiting wheelchair and chauffeured through the airport by a delightfully chatty New Yorker, the first one I'd met, all the way to immigration. I looked at the queue and my heart sank. There were hundreds of people snaking through the vast hall, waiting to show their visas to the stern officers in their boxes. 
It was a four-hour wait, my wheelchair compadre told me, as he promptly wheeled me around to the disabled access queue, which was completely clear. I presented my visa and was waved through to the exit in less than a minute, popped into a taxi and told to have a nice day. And boy, would I. Before I threw caution to the wind, I had been warned by my sister that everybody in New York was very unfriendly and I shouldn't expect help from anyone. I told her that surely they would find my accent charming and my injury intriguing, which was an idea rebuked by all family members. So far, so wrong. My taxi driver took me right to the door of my Airbnb and even made sure I had made it up the stairs safely before leaving again. The local bagel shop took the time to help me understand tipping. And since I was unable to move very quickly at all, it gave me the opportunity to really look properly at all the streets I hobbled down. Sure, it doesn't take most people an hour to cross a Brooklyn Bridge, but I would heartily recommend it if you want a fully immersive experience. All of the so-called tourist traps were a haven for me. At the famous diner with a queue around the block, I was ushered inside to wait while sitting, but then taken straight to a table, whilst the other suckers waited outside for theirs. At the Empire State Building, I was taken to the disabled elevator, my own private lift, and was straight to the top without so much as a moment stuck behind anyone else. I was escorted by a private tour guide to the top of the rock and given the best seat, front, top deck, on our hopper tour buses for every single journey. People moved out of the way for me, offered me seats and wheelchairs at every opportunity. I was living the dream. No queues, no waiting, no worries. We managed to fit in twice the amount of tourist tat that we thought we would. Sure, I didn't get to go to Coney Island and I was in near constant pain, but I'd rather be in pain at the top of the Empire State Building than on my mum and dad's sofa in Stockport. As lovely as it is there. Thanks so much, Judith. New York is the best. And yet, I cheated and stuck some applause on, because right now, we all deserve it. Next up is Paul Brady. His story is about grief and was due to be told at our council nine in March on the theme Fool. There's a little bit of strong language, but nothing that would upset the vicar. The funniest thing happened. I have a voice inside my head. I think everyone does in one form or another. It's not one of those voices that screams about burning everything or killing everyone. It kind of sounds like me, but it's the sarcastic and cynical me that reminds me that I shouldn't get too far ahead of myself. It used to tell me how I shouldn't get up and sing because it would be terrible and a die of embarrassment. It told me to remain terrified of women, not to go for interviews, don't do public speaking, meet new people, meet anyone. In later years it told me that I should concern myself with what people would think about me taking on the woman's role when raising my own kids. Needless to say, a long time ago I had learned to tell the voice to fuck off around its own door, as one by one I overcame all the various obstacles of my crippling shyness. The monster I created. For a long time now the voice has just been a chorus line extra in my head, just popping up every now and again with a funny remark about this or that. The voice slow hand claps me a lot in a sarcastic way when I trip or drop things or say the wrong thing at the wrong time. The voice and I have pretty much agreed on one thing though, feelings and emotions. We agree that it's great that people have them, we agree that they're not really for us. No point in talking about something that you don't really have and don't really understand. No point in pointing out that you find it uncomfortable when people let their emotions and feelings run away with them. No point in pretending you have them either. People with actual feelings will spot you as a bullshitter straight away. So the voice and I agreed that we'd be the guy that gets things done in a crisis. 
We'd be the guy that shouldered the weight when others needed a timeout. We'd be reliable, solid and stoic. We would introduce just the right amount of black humour to keep people from freaking out. We'd be the listener, the organiser and the quiet mover who handled things when all around things were going to pieces. In really terrible times of personal tragedy the mask would slip a little but people allowed it at times like that. The voice would remind me though to give myself a shake because other weaker people than me were watching and they needed to see that I was strong and keeping it together for everyone's sake. We agreed if anybody asked about Rosie, my standard response would be, Ach, I'm fine, followed by, these things happen, don't they? She had a good innings. Then the funniest thing happened. Since Rosie died, I'd been availing of some time off work, getting things organised, getting some stuff done that I'd had on my to-do list for a while. I'd enjoyed it, to be perfectly honest. I felt a little down on some days, but I filled those days with things to do and felt like I really should get back to work and stop swinging the lead. The doctor's appointment was a kind of check-up at the end of my time off. Just to check in and let them know I was fine and ready to get back to the cold face. I jumped out of the car and crossed the road to the footpath. I don't know what I did, but I miscalculated badly. I went down like a bag of shit. I hit the footpath hard with knees, chest and shoulders and made one of those whimp noises as all the air rushed out of me at once. The voice was straight on it. Oh, good lord. Outside the doctor's, really? Well done, Norman Wisdom. That's an absolute peach. I laughed it off and made a few jokes to the small crowd that had gathered to help me back up when they heard the guttural, oh Jesus bollocks, as I screamed as I fell down. After a short sit in the waiting room, the screen told me to go and see the duty doctor. I was greeted by a pleasant young girl about the same age as my oldest child. Have a seat, Mr. Brady, she said. Paul, please, I replied. Mr. Brady was my dad. I sat down. I see you've been off for a few weeks, she began, and, oh, I see... Her voice softened. I'm sorry about your mum. Is that why you're here? I opened my mouth to trot out the standard, I'm fine, blah blah blah, and nothing came out. I realised that the words were sitting just at the top of my throat, but if I let them come out of my mouth, they were going to be accompanied by a wail. Tears started running down both my cheeks. I signalled to the doctor with a give me a second finger. The voice was shouting in my head. Are you crying? Oh my God, you are. In front of this kid... I'm so embarrassed for you. The doctor turned in her chair and put her hand on mine and said softly, It's okay, take as much time as you need. That didn't help at all. There was a noise, a kind of mid-range monotonal note, like the noise a squeaky door makes when slowly closing. I flicked a glance at the door. It was closed tight. That's when I realised the noise was coming from me. I looked at the doctor in a panic. I wasn't able to stop. And out it came. Wave after wave after wave of uncontrollable, heartbroken sobbing. I looked at the young doctor and shrugged my shoulders and just gave up trying to hold it in and just let it go. Fifteen minutes I sat there, bawling like a big fat baby who'd lost his mummy. Then it struck me. That's exactly what I was. Only worse. A baby will cry because one of a few basic fixable things need fixed. I was a fifty-year-old baby that didn't need winded. Thankfully I hadn't pissed myself. Unfortunately, though, I had the one insight that the average baby doesn't have. My brain had figured it out instantly. This wasn't fixable. She was actually gone. She was actually gone and had left me nothing. Fifty years of closeness and familiarity gone in a few gruesome seconds never to return. All those memories now filed away with no updates to be added. No more eye-rolling and fake slaps. No more, Paul Brady, you're a terrible case. 
no more embarrassing, reliable, super fan of absolutely everything that I did. Just nothing there anymore. A quiet, empty space. And this feeling, this punching the balls feeling was now mine forever in its place. And there wasn't a single fucking thing I could do about it. So I howled. For 15 minutes in a bland, featureless doctor's office, I howled to a poor kid. Half my age, half my size and a quarter of my weight. I just let it rip. I couldn't do anything about it anyway. For the first time in my life, the voice just looked awkwardly at the floor and said absolutely nothing. That was weird as well. Eventually I regained some composure, but was still doing that stuttery breathing thing that kids do. I think you should maybe take a few more weeks off, she said. No shit, Sherlock, said the voice. Every time I thought about it for the rest of the day, I started blubbing again. I started to really worry that this broken version of me was the new model. I could never make this work in my everyday life. It would be impossible. I went to bed that night drunk and confused. Obviously I tried to fix it with alcohol too, but that didn't work either. Then the funniest thing happened. I woke up the next day and oddly felt a wee bit better. The heaviness in my chest was a bit lighter. I literally facepalmed when I thought about the wee doctor in the previous day's events. The voice laughed aloud in my head for a good solid hour. But the word never ended. The ground didn't open up and swallow me. I wasn't laughed at the whole way home. There was no lasting outward mark on me that said to the casual observer that I was a big fat crybaby. I just felt a lot better. At 50 years of age I became an orphan and finally grew up. Maybe Rosie left me something after all. Thanks very much, Paul. You can hear more from Mr. Brady on podcast 133, by the way, called The Kindness of Strangers. As you know, the 10 in 10 by 9 refers to the maximum duration of the story. It's not a target. And we've had many great stories that come in well under that. Here's one now, and it's from Karen Hetherington. I think everyone has that one special friend who they picked up in the formative years of their life. They grew with, shared everything with, no matter how trivial it may seem looking back. Someone they were closer to than a sibling even, or in my case, in place of one. Someone you spent every day with, stayed over with, had holidays with, had so much in common with. Someone who as far as you were concerned was part of your family. And as childhood blends into adolescence and like the branches of a tree, you both spread out and formed other friendships and relationships which infiltrated your party of two, you still clung on to them because, well, they were there first and it was a bond that should never be broken. And so you try to merge them and their new friends with you and your new friends with varying degrees of success as the years pass by. And then one day you realise they're gone. Fast forward life and you wonder how they are doing and you realise you haven't seen your friend in 10 years and marvel at how you've completely lost touch with them and the most shocking realisation of all is you have no idea why. There was no rye, no falling out, no difference of opinion, no bad feeling, you just edged gradually further and further away from each other. It was insidious really. Until there was nothing and you throw yourself headlong into the next chapter of your life and you don't look back because you're not going that way. You don't look back until the advent of Facebook and suddenly you have an influx of friend requests from people you knew at school. I'll refrain from saying school friends. For many of them I was never friends with in school and had no intention of being friends with on Facebook. 
either to sate their curiosity or to boost their popularity. But you add the ones you were fond of and in time others you know pop up in your suggestions until one day you see your former best friend. You have a look at as much as you can see of their profile and your finger hovers over the key as you wonder whether to add them or not. Your thoughts perforated with nostalgia and fondness and love. But you hesitate, ruminate, wonder if they will want to reconnect. Wonder if they will know who you are. You've changed a lot and not even your name remains the same, although theirs does. And so you send a message instead, asking how they are and saying you would love to meet up. And then another along similar lines. Both go unanswered and it hurts a bit, but you figure they have moved on and the expanse between you is too great. And you keep charging on ahead with your life, putting it to the back of your mind and trying not to feel shunned. And then, years later, you see them while out having coffee, or you think you do. And so you have a good look, and you see them looking over at you too. But you're afraid to approach them for fear of mistaken identity. Or worse still, in case they don't want to speak to you. And so, you do what you think is best under the circumstances. You go home, and you send another message. Which again, goes unanswered. And due to the advances in technology, you now see that it's not only unanswered, but actually unread. And then you give up and resign yourself to the fact that sadly, that chapter of your life is closed. Then four and a half years later, you get an unexpected but by no means unwelcome message from them, entirely out of the blue. Informing you that they have just read your messages, which were languishing in the spam message folder, many people, myself included, don't even know they have. And so you start to chat, tentatively at first, testing the water as such. And before you know it, you're chatting for hours, messages the length of essays firing back and forth. After all, there's a lot of life to catch up on. Births, deaths, marriages, jobs, people from your mutual past are all worthy discussion. And suddenly you realise you just need to see them in person. But you're busy with work and life gets in the way. So you hold off making arrangements. A few months go by and you keep in touch but you still haven't hooked up and you recognise the need to put a plan in place and so arrangements are made but cancelled by both parties last minute due to both illness and looming deadlines and you agree that you will sort something else out. And then we all get caught up in a global pandemic and become locked in our houses for the foreseeable future. This is the story of Michelle and I, although by no means the whole story who met in the school playground at eight years old and were immediate best friends. We were drawn to each other instantly. We were quiet. We were different. We were kindred. The memory of how we came to be in each other's lives is crystal clear to me, yet the memory of how we disappeared from each other's lives remains muddied. It's been 20 years now since I have seen Michelle, and although I will always regret the years she was missing from my life, I know we will meet in the not-too-distant future, I hope, and I am determined we will never lose contact again. It goes without saying that people can and do change, sometimes beyond recognition. Different friends drift in and out, playing their appropriate roles in different chapters of our lives, but I think the ones who are most important either remain with us or return to us. And although we can all get caught up in the whirlwind, which is life, I think we should all pay closer attention to the ones worth holding on to that little bit tighter.
Thanks so much, Karen. I hope you'll bring Michelle to our next 10 by 9 evening. So, if you have a true story to tell and would like to submit it for the podcast, get in touch. Go to our website, 10by9.com, and have a look at our guidelines and hints and tips. If you're unsure of anything or want a bit of help, email us. Our address is story at 10by9.com. We'd love to hear from you. And be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and of course, on Instagram. And that is it from this podcast. Please keep your stories coming in, choose your own theme, or you can work to a theme that we've used for previous events. All the info you need is on our website, but feel free to email us if you have any questions. And if you're self-isolating with family, well, why not have your own mini 10 by 9 and let us know about it. I'll be back with another podcast next week. Until then, please stay safe. For now though, bye-bye. Thank you.